Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. This is Jay Martin. I'm an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is Mark Yusko. Now, Mark is the CEO, CIO, and founder of Morgan Creek Capital. He is also the managing partner of Morgan Creek Digital. And between these two firms, Mark manages about $2 billion in assets. Now, I really wanted to pull from Mark today, you know, where he's seeing value, where he's looking to allocate capital, because that's generally at the roots of all of these discussions. But where we ended up going first was a conversation about mindset that really was fascinating because this is occupying more and more of my brain lately, investor psychology and investor mindset. And so we started there. We talked about the leadership mindset, the investor mindset, and what Mark has seen over his three decades in the finance sector that has made people stand out and led to his success building Morgan Creek into what it is today. Of course, then we got into the portfolio. As always, I dove into where he's pushing cash towards. He's very focused on blockchain right now, but actually looking at a lot of opportunities that I haven't heard many other investors speak about. So this one was fun. I hope you enjoy it. Here is Mark Yusko. Mark, thanks so much for coming on and making the time. Oh, uh, no, great to be here and, and looking forward to this conversation a lot. Me too, me too. And I've got a, a web of directions I'd love to go with you. Before we jump in, because you haven't been on my show before, for anybody who's not familiar with yourself or with Morgan Creek, can you give us like the elevator pitch? Uh, who is Mark Yusko? How do you spend your time? Yeah, but Jay, you know, I, I don't do short well, as we're going to find out uh, as okay. we get to know each other, but I'll try. So, you know, I um, interestingly, I grew up uh, not too far from you in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, outside of Seattle, uh, made my way to the Midwest for school. I uh, went to business school in Chicago, ended up working for an insurance company, an asset manager, and then got into my chapter one, which was working for not-for-profits. I worked back at my alma mater at Notre Dame, and then down here at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, running the endowments. And chapter two was forming Morgan Creek in 2004. And that was an advisory business. So registered investment advisor, outsource CIO and fund of funds. So we did all things alternative. So hedge funds, private investments, venture capital, real estate, commodities, you name it, we we played there. And, and our tagline was alternative thinking about investments, right? I would say there are no alternative investments. There are stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities, mm. and how we combine those things into hedge funds or private partnerships or whatever uh, defines what's alternative. And then really four years ago, set down this path for chapter three, which was forming Morgan Creek Digital. And now I spend the bulk of my time actually in the blockchain and crypto spaces. And I'm just having a blast. So, you know, I, I loved my chapter one, I love my chapter two, enjoying chapter three, and then my chapter four, I'll teach uh, at some point, maybe a couple of decades from now. Any ideas what you'd want to teach? I have my eyes set on, on leadership, actually. I, I I got involved in a, a leadership development program, scholarship program back at Notre Dame, and and I love that. And I just and I love the whole concept of. I don't think you can teach leadership, but I think you can teach characteristics and then put people in a place where they develop into leaders. And so I got some some thoughts about that, but maybe maybe that's a path. That's interesting. You know, I got in this debate uh, relatively recently with a good friend of mine, fellow entrepreneur, and we were arguing over whether or not a non-leader can become a leader in your business. And he was saying no, and I was saying yes. And you know, he had a candidate 
who he had tapped for leadership. It wasn't working out. And he had decided this person just wasn't a leader and it was binary. And that was it. And my counterpoint was, if you're either a leader or you're not, then there's no spectrum. You know, if you, if you can't go from non-leader to leader, that means you can't go from good leader to great leader, right? What do you think about that? Look, I think it's, it's a great debate and, and we'll spend the whole conversation on, but we won't. And look, I, I probably, I fall a little bit more in his camp in that great leaders are born, not made. Okay. But I, but I wouldn't go completely that way in that I do think you can coach characteristics that we all have, right? Curiosity, passion and drive, uh, grit and resilience. But I, I do think the levels of those things, particularly resilience and, and courage. To me, leadership is just about courage. Having the courage to step outside your comfort zone, to pursue new ideas, to be willing to fail. And I think we have a societal problem, not to get too deep into this, but we have a societal problem today, the participation trophy world in which we live in. Mm. We don't let people fail. We don't encourage failure. And it's like Edison said, I've never failed. I just found 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb. And so <laughs> you need to step out. And, and so I, I do think you can help coach people in that regard. But at the end, my experience is the best of the best, the, the people you want to follow Right. People like I would throw down my stuff, what I'm doing right now, and I would go yeah. follow them. And I've had yeah. that handful of times in my life. I think they're born, not made. Is just my view. What do you think it is about somebody that makes you want to throw everything oh. down and, and follow this person blindly? Passion, charisma, vision, and just a, I said, a grit and a resilience. That, yeah. that ability to get up, right? Have faced failure and to get back up and to face adversity and get back up. But, but, for me, what I want to follow is people who, who have big, hairy, audacious goals, right? The BHAG thing. Yeah. You know, I want to be around people who think big, act big, dream big. And for me, it's kind of interesting. It's back to the career. I spent my whole career, I say, hanging out with the bad people, right? Hanging out with the people on the fringe. Because okay. Okay. you think about technology, it always starts at the fringe. Yeah. And you know, you think about junk bonds, right? Oh, Michael Milken, he's a bad guy, and even Boski. I'm like, they those people may have done bad things, but junk bonds were an amazing innovation and created capital efficiency and access to capital for small businesses that changed the world. Or you think about, you know, the internet. Oh, that's you know for pornographers. Well, no, the internet's for everybody. And it is, unfortunately, you know, contrary to Paul Krugman, bigger than the fax machine. And now we're at this new cusp of technology around blockchain technology. And, you know, the original, oh, it's only for terrorists and drug dealers. Like, seriously? Right. More drug dealers use SACO money yeah. than blockchain or Bitcoin. Full stop, right? Every day, the number one thing to you do terrorism and drug deals is money, green pieces of paper. Cash. You know. Of course. And so anyway, so it's just, I think having that, that ability to embrace things that are new and to develop a, a courage in your own conviction from doing the work and then having that passion that you can, it's funny, I, somebody told me once, oh, Mark, you're such a good salesman. Like, I'm not a salesman. I'm an investment person. I, I, take, I take great offense at that. He said, no, Mark, you're just looking at it the wrong way. Sales is simply transferring your enthusiasm to another. Anyone who can transfer their enthusiasm to another, I think has the potential to lead and that enthusiasm comes either from doing the work, having conviction, 
or, or just having a, a, a vision and a drive to to achieve something that that is, you know, extraordinary, uncommon. I agree so much with uh, with so much of what you said and that charisma, you know, refer to it as sales acumen or whatever. But it goes a long way when it comes to getting buy in from whether that's investors, shareholders, employees, community support. Um, the ability to communicate is so underrated. It's funny. I was chatting with David Rubenstein yesterday, oh. uh, you know, one of the best in the business at doing, Incredible. you know, hosting interviews among dozens of other things. But when I asked him for the key skill that had helped him succeed in politics and business and now in media, he's like, I learned how to talk. I learned how to communicate ideas in a way that people could understand them. Right. And, and that also translated for him to the written word. He's like, that's why I got my break when he I was 27, working for Jimmy Carter in the Oval Office, all this stuff. So fascinating. Now look, Jay, that is such an important point. And, and look, I'm a huge fan of David. And, and I actually got to spend an hour with him in uh, one of the, the big libraries in D.C. once, just, mm-hmm. just a, a by happenstance and, and learned a lot in, in that one hour. But, but that point about communicating ideas in simple terms mm. is so critical. So many people try to impress with jargon or big fancy words. And, and the key is anecdote and experience that people can relate to and keeping things simple. And I look, I, I joke all the time that, you know, I got the gift of gab from my mom. I said earlier, I don't do short well. And right. my mom, we called her yak yak face. She could talk to anyone, anywhere, anytime about anything. That is an amazing skill and that ability to bond with people and to engender trust. And ultimately, followership is about trust. Mm. People won't follow people they don't trust. And you can be the smartest person in the world. You can be the most talented person in the world. If people don't trust you, they Mm. will not follow you. And I actually learned something interesting uh, the hard way, right, by failing about this in that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And so when you're trying to motivate followers, get to know them, right? Know their needs, their their desires, their fears, their ambitions, because no matter how smart you are, if you just come in with all the answers and you don't ask any questions, you're not going to get any followers. And so that ability to communicate on anyone's level, not above their level, not to try to impress, but to try to to embrace Mm -hmm. and engage. I'm big on the E words, actually. I actually have seven E words that I try to live my life by about, you know, how do you, how do you explore new opportunities? How do you e- evaluate new ideas? How do you engage with things at all times? How do you, how do you embrace uh, opportunity and, and emulate the things that you believe in, the, the ideals and the, the values that you, you really believe in? Interesting. I definitely want to follow up on on that and just that concept of what that does for you, what utility it serves and and dive into that. You know, a couple of things what you shared for sure, trust in leadership is so critical and reminded me of like an early lesson I learned when I, you know, started working in finance and there's a lot of bravado and and you know, peacocking if you want to call it that. You know, the the theory is trust me because I always get it right, right? Yep. When in theory it's like Trust me, because I'll be honest when I get it wrong. And those are two very different things. And oh, man, I'm stealing that. That is that is gold. (laughs) No, that is gold. And look, I I believe in in the Picasso line, right? Good artists borrow, great artists steal. So I am stealing that. In fact, you'll probably see it on Twitter later today. That is so good. 
Yeah, awesome. And then just just one final thing I wanted to pull on. You talked about encouraging failure. And it resonated with me right now because I shared with you, I think prior to hit and record, I have three young boys all under five. It's chaos. But, you know, when my wife and I are are scripting, what are the values we like if we succeed as parents, what did we do correctly, right? What values did we instill on our boys? And number one for us is like the utility in doing hard things. The reason you should do hard things, you know, not suffering for the sake of suffering, but suffering for, with purpose, right? How do you teach that to a four-year-old? We're, we're wrapping our minds around that right now. Like, here's why you should do a hard thing. Here's why it's worth it. And building the relationship between work and reward or patience and reward or suffering and reward or whatever that is. No, look, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and I was very lucky in the sense that I got a second chance. You know, we had, we had two kids and they were great and, and awesome. And then we didn't have any more. And, and I remember going to the doctor when, when we were trying to you know, figure out why. And, and he said, oh, you know, you're just not going to have any more kids. And we wanted four. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I said, why? And he said, well, that's funny. You know, you, you check out fine. Your, your wife checks out fine. You're just, you know, one of the 5% we can't explain. And I said, doc, that is unacceptable. Because that means mathematically in 20 years, something could happen. 19 years later, something happened. I was off by one year. So now I have a little 10 year old in addition to my 32 and 30 year old. And I get to do it all again. And I'm a way better dad this time. We're way better parents. Not that we were bad parents, but we're just better because now we've had that experience of, and I love your point, which is I have a hashtag, right? Hashtag live outside the comfort zone. Mm. And that is so important that Look, I'm a, I'm a science guy, biology and chemistry guy, you know, thought I was going to be a doctor, ended up in investing, which I think science is the best training for investing, whole nother topic. And there's only two states in biology, growth and death. I like one, don't like the other. And sure. so you're either growing or you're dying and you can't grow without pain. I mean, think about working out and your muscles. If, if you don't ache afterwards, you're not, you're not growing, you're not pushing yourself. And doing those hard things and being willing to fail and putting your kids in places where they have to learn to be resilient and to be self-sufficient and and to do all those things is absolutely the right answer. Mm. But again, we live in this participation trophy world where we try to shelter everybody and nobody should fail and everybody should get a trophy. And uh, no, in fact, uh, my wife got me to watch Ted Lasso right? This, this thing on, on Apple TV about this uh, football coach from the U.S. who goes over to coach football in, in the U.K. And there's this great older player who's, who's kind of going through the end of his career, and he's coaching little girls and uh, nine-year-old girls. And it was exactly my experience. So my son was on a soccer team, and they went over and uh, lost 10 games. And they got a, uh, a medal. And I took it and I threw it in the trash and everybody was horrified. And like, no, even my four-year-old son knows they didn't deserve a medal for going over. And yeah. this guy in Ted Lasso last night was, was chastising these young girls for losing. And they're all like, yeah, we don't get a trophy for losing, but they passed out trophies anyway. So, right. Yeah. Fascinating. I love that. I love that. Okay. I want to uh, I want to talk about uh, Morgan Creek Digital a little yep. bit. Now you just mentioned, you know, maybe you thought you were going to go into science and you ended up in finance, but what a great background to analyze 
companies. And, um, you know, I'll quote your, your pinned tweet right now on your Twitter feed. It says, the greatest wealth is created by being an early investor in innovation. And making that investment requires believing in something before the majority of people understand it. You will be mocked, ridiculed, and criticized for your non-consensus action. And it is absolutely worth it. So, so talk to me about how you action that at Morgan Creek Digital. Yeah, look, it, 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 it is so true. If you just go back in, in history and you look at, at all the great breakthroughs and all the great innovations, they, they started as Will Durant, you know, the historian said, every custom begins with broken precedent. And so you must break precedent in order to, to do something great. And everybody will tell you, no. No, those rules are made not to be broken and, and you can't do that. And the world is flat or, you know, gravity doesn't work or or, you know, we can't have wireless communications because it'll cause your brain to, to fry or you can't get in that airplane because if you go faster than a certain miles per hour, your body will cave in on itself. All FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt spread by incumbents who enjoy incumbency, mm-hmm. right? Incumbents like being incumbents because they get wealthy that way. And so any disruptive innovation that comes along, they're going to tell you that it's bad and tell you that it's wrong. And so like I said, I've spent my my whole career kind of hanging out with these people on the fringe that are constantly pushing these boundaries. And it hit me, you know, this, this epiphany one day that it really was this idea that, that all great wealth right, has come from these innovations. And in order to, to invest in them, you have to have courage, back to what, what makes great leaders, you have to have courage to be willing to step outside your comfort zone, to go beyond the customary, and to embrace a new idea that has the potential to become big, but you don't know at the time. And when you do it, Right. Let, let's take digital. Right. So eight years ago, you know, I was introduced to digital asset world. So not at the very beginning, not in 2008, 2009, when Satoshi, whoever he, she, they are, was was creating Bitcoin. But uh, in 2013, this this friend of mine, Dan Moorhead, and Dan, I've known each other 30 years and we've come up in the ranks together. And and he called me up and said, hey, I'm, I'm shutting down my hedge fund. Come to San Francisco. I'll buy you dinner. And you know, we were his original institutional investor when he launched, when he spun out of Tiger. And I'm like, yeah, tell me more about it. He says, look, I'm going to set up two funds, one in Bitcoin and, and one in, in blockchain infrastructure. And look, I made the first of my many bad decisions. And I've made so many bad decisions in, in crypto, uh, which is kind of funny. But you know, I was not running drugs on Silk Road. I was not a cryptography student. In 2013, I didn't get it. I hadn't done any work. And I was typical skeptical Mark. Oh no, this is different. This is rogue. You know, I'm I'm focused on private investments and real estate and commodities and stocks. Nope, no time for this. Right. And he said, No, this can be really big. I'm gonna spend the rest of my career focused on this. I'm like, huh, okay, I trust this guy. I like this guy. All right, picks and shovels. I'm in. We'd invested in Google and eBay and Yahoo, crazy silly names back in the '90s when I was at Notre Dame. Made tons of money. And we'd invested in, in, in other infrastructure uh, over the years. And so, okay, infrastructure works for me. So did that. Now that fund's up on 11 or 12X. No one's complaining, but I should have put the money in the Bitcoin fund. It's up you know, 350X, but I didn't. And so 
about nine months later, I write these long back to David Rubenstein. You know, for me, one of the things that that improved my abilities as an investor was becoming a writer and communicating to others. And, and it was funny, I, I'd write these long letters. They'd be 30, 40, 50. I got one, I got up to 79 pages. And everybody from my wife to all my partners here would say, what are you doing? Nobody's going to read that. I said, it's not for them. It's for me. Mm. It's how I think. And there's the great quote, and I can't remember the, the writer who said this, but if I can't read what I wrote, how do I know what I think? And so that process of writing something down and, and putting it in a form that can communicate to others in a simple, clear way makes you a better investor. So, so I wrote this letter. And mm. in this 40-page letter in 2014, I wrote one paragraph saying that Bitcoin at $500 was an interesting, special situation. Not something you should put all your wealth in, but an interesting, special situation deserved a 1% allocation in your portfolio. Now, what's, what's funny is I got hate. I mean, hate. Forget ridicule. I got hate from my clients saying, we'll fire you, right? Don't talk about this stupid stuff. Go back and talk about stocks and bonds and hedge funds. Now, I, I joke, the next paragraph was about Saudi equity, which arguably is more objectionable at this point than Bitcoin, depending on who you talk to. Right. But no one criticized that. Hmm. They just criticized Bitcoin. Right. Because it was unknown. It was yeah. outside the comfort zone. Yeah. And so uh, had people invested, which some did, um, they, they've done okay. And, and now the funny thing is, you know, the Winklevoss twins and I were introduced to Bitcoin at the same time. There's a book called Bitcoin Billionaires about them and not about me. So <laughs> they got it more than I did. Yeah. Now, technically, I didn't have $500 million to buy it like they did, but I, I yeah. had some and I, and I didn't. So I reacted to that negative feedback the wrong way. I didn't have the courage to step through it and to make that investment because I didn't have the conviction yet because I hadn't done the work. So over the next year, I did the work and actually had so much conviction at the time. I told my son who was graduating from Notre Dame, I said, go to San Francisco and meet with Dan. He wanted to live in San Francisco, meet with Dan, go to work at Coinbase. And, you know, he's like, whatever. And he went out and he talked to him and he's like, I don't know, dad, maybe it's gonna be a big deal. But you know what? I'm going to go with KPMG. It's safe. Gets me to San Francisco. Uh, that's where I want to be. Now, when, when Coinbase went public, we got a little chuckle. He's like, all right, Dad, you're right. But you're not as smart as you think you are. Okay. Like, well, you tell. I told you to go to work at Coinbase. He says, yeah, but you didn't lever up the house and put on Bitcoin. I'm like, ooh, you. <laughs> okay. So fast forward to uh, 2016, 17. I finally convinced some clients to get involved, I'd finally done enough work where I had conviction that this was going to be my chapter three. So we formed Morgan Creek Digital uh, in the fourth quarter of 2017, went out to launch a venture capital fund. Now, the funny thing about that is I'd never been a venture capitalist. I had been an allocator, I'd been a chief investment officer, and it was a little bit audacious, probably even a little bit cocky to say, we're going to become one of the, you know, brand names in venture capital in, in the, the blockchain and crypto space. Mm -hmm. But there weren't any, right? There was Pantera, who was kind of the best. And there was Blockchain Capital, it was right behind him. And Polychain was just getting started. There was no A16Z crypto. There was no paradigm. There just weren't that many competitors yet. And so we went out to raise a small fund. We got lucky. We met a visionary, talk about vision, met a visionary CIO at Fairfax County uh, Retirement System. They gave us some capital. And kind of the rest is history. So we've now raised, we're raising our third venture fund. 
our first two funds have, have done pretty nicely okay. um, by being early investors in, in that innovation. Now, talk to me about what it's like raising money for a, a crypto-centric fund and maybe like relate your, your first venture fund to your third and what, how those processes and applicative differs. Hey, this, this, is, this is classic, right? So picture this, first quarter 2018. And if you remember that time period, Bitcoin was crashing. Yeah, I mean, that's crashing, right. Crashing. That's right. right. After the 2017 20,000 yeah. on December 18th, 2017, fell to 10,000, was crashing again. And we're out there saying, hey, don't you want to mm. invest with us in, in this space? And people are like, are you kidding me? And we would call 100 people and 90 wouldn't call us back. Yeah. They're like, don't even call. Don't, don't talk to us. Of the 10 that actually let us talk to them, nine out of those said, no, not, not even close. Now, we did meet these two visionary CIOs at, at Fairfax and four other institutions that kind of knew us and trusted us from our older relationships. And so those six institutions and about 30 individuals were intrepid enough to, to give us our first $41 million. Now, we put that $41 million to work. And as I said, it, it's up about 7, 8x. Uh, it's doing nicely. And we invested in things like Coinbase and Figure and eToro and, and a bunch of other business. So went out to raise fund two uh, a year and a half later. And we started raising, we're going to have to raise $250 because now we're going to be real venture capitalists. And we got 75 and COVID hits. Mm. And nobody wanted to talk, right? The world locked down, the, yeah. you know, weren't an incumbent, you couldn't get. Now, the interesting thing, though, is we'd send out, you know, 100 emails or do calls. And now 70 said, don't call us back instead yeah. of 90. Sure. But of that 30, still 90% said no. This is stupid. Don't get it. But that tripled the number of clients. So we went from 30 plus investors to 80 plus investors. And that was great. So that was fun too. And we ended up uh, raising 100 million for that second fund. We, we basically cut it short. Why? Well, we closed on the 75, COVID hits, a bunch of our companies like BlockFi and Figure and Coinbase start to do well. So we got these big write-ups. And you know how venture works. When you come in late in a fund, you come in at cost and you pay interest, but you get the write-up. So the people that came into our, our second closing got a 3.3x write-up on day one. Right. So we didn't want to dilute those early investors too much. So we just capped that fund at $100 million and started fund three. So we're now raising fund three. We've done our first close on about $80 million on a $400 million target. Okay. And now... In fact, I just got off the phone with a very large global pension fund uh, that wouldn't even talk to us two years ago. Mm -hmm. Now they're talking to us. We've just done our second call, set up our third call. And I would say it's about now 50-50, about 50% still say, don't call us back, not interested. And still 90% are still saying no, but at least we're, we're going to increase the number uh, of investors. Okay. Now I'm curious what... You just got off the phone with a pension fund. What the pension funds need to see, Mark, to start putting skin in the game? I mean, it's going to be just very different from what a retail investor needs to see to put skin in the game, right? We just, you see hype sometimes, just sentiment sometimes, right? Yeah, um, trend, it's, but. it's so important. And, you know, there's this great line about investing that an investment committee should be an odd number and three is too many. 
And, and it's so true. And it's why individuals and, and families tend to, to be more able to, to innovate and to invest in innovative areas because single decision maker, whereas committees tend to be slower. And so, right, four years ago, 90%, no way. Two years ago, 70%, no way. Today, still 50%. So this, this pension fund has gotten over the hurdle of no, absolutely not. But you know, your question, what do they need to see? What they need to see is evidence that, that this is a, a technological trend that they should embrace the same way they've embraced other technological trends, whether it was you know, client server computing way back in the 80s, whether it was the internet in the 90s, whether it was the mobile net in the 2010s, and now this idea of the trust net. And so we start pitching them on this technological evolution from the mainframe computer to microcomputers to the personal computer to the internet to the mobile net, handheld supercomputers to the trust net, which is this global computer that we're, we're creating on blockchains. And, and what they need to see is, is evidence that that's real. And I think we have evidence of that, right? We have evidence now that the blockchains are an innovation in data storage and management that is superior, right? The old days, I lent you money. I wrote down single entry in my ledger, and you had to trust me that I wrote down the right number. So then the Medici's came along and said, no, dual entry is better. You keep a ledger, I keep a ledger. But what if I write down 200 and you write down 100? Medici said, hey, we'll fix that. So we'll charge you a fee. You'll have accounts with us. We'll keep the records and dual entry accounting. Awesome. It's been a good run for banks, 700 plus years. Now we have code, which can take that role as the arbiter of value. So we can have triple entry accounting using a blockchain. It's immutable. It's transparent. And the beautiful thing about that is it allows us to spend our efforts not on validating transactions and validating ownership of assets, but on creating value. And that is a massive value unlocking mechanism. So what this pension is looking at, and it's what the Fairfax County pension CIOs saw four years ago, being true visionaries, is they're like, look, this is very similar to the unlocking of value of the internet, right? The average person looked at the internet, it's a fad. It'll never be bigger than the fax machine. It'll never be important. It'll never be this liberator of ideas because I don't have to spend time going to the encyclopedia and looking stuff up. I've got the world of information at my fingertips. So now I can unlock the creative potential of myself and my team to do other things. And I think what blockchain does and, and what ultimately cryptocurrencies and NFTs and, and the metaverse all do is they move us into a more vibrant, more monetizable society. You know, one of my favorite stories in the last year, although I totally missed it, so again, I make lots of mistakes, is you know, a year ago in lockdown, my 10-year-old got me involved in Pokemon Go. And so he and I walk around playing Pokemon Go, and I'm probably more addicted to it than he is. Uh, and I think it's this very cool game. And what I love about it is you can actually create value from your effort, right? These things have value. Now, there was no way to really monetize that value until blockchain technology comes along. So now you've got this game, Axie Infinity, 
that was just created a year ago. Think about this. A year ago, well, I guess the game was created four years ago, but it really exploded about a year ago. And in the past year, it generated more revenue than Fortnite. That's unfathomable. But it's not generated for Epic Games right down the street here in North Carolina. Yeah. It's generated for the owners of the decentralized application. And so there is this incredible uh, liberation of creativity and idea flow. And, and, those, and the benefits don't just go to the Zuckerbergs of the world or the, the centralized owners of these assets and the big tech companies. It can go to everybody. And that is something that, that one, I get really excited about and I talk all day about. Two, I think people, once they have that aha moment, that eureka moment, that this is technological evolution, not revolution. It's just the internet of everything, as opposed to the internet of you know connected smartphones. Right. Then, again, I told you I don't do short well, but that, that's what a pension needs to see. It needs to see that this is real tech, not a fad. They need to see that real people are involved. Like, why did that first pension fund invest with us? We were an upstart firm, never been venture capitalist before. If you ask them, which people have, they're like, we trusted Mark and Morgan Creek. They've been around a long time. They're from our world. If they're embracing this, if Mark's going to spend none of his time to at that point, half his time to today, all my time, maybe there's something there there. And they didn't put all their money in. Right. You know, start with a small amount, doubled up, tripled up, and it's, it's added a lot of value. And think about that thing I wrote in 14. If you had taken that 1%, just 1% out of a stock bond portfolio, half percent from stocks, half percent from bonds, over the past seven years, instead of compounding at 7.2, you would have compounded at 9.2. That's better, right? Now, the cool part is, had it gone to zero, which some would argue could have happened, I'll say it couldn't have happened because we're too far along, but let's say it could have, you still would have made seven. That's a 10 to 1 upside downside ratio. And all the while that you owned it, it was uncorrelated with your other assets. So it added value to a diversified portfolio. In fact, I've been around a long time. I got white hair to prove it. And here's the thing. I've never seen an asset in all the time I've been doing this that delivers on its promise of low correlation the way mm. Bitcoin and crypto does. Sure. And it's because... If you think about all the other assets we invest in, all of their returns are driven from the same things, economic growth, interest rates, profit margins, liquidity. Crypto is driven by technology, by regulatory changes, by millennial adoption. Mm -hmm. right? I, I, I do this thing all the time. Like, ask anyone over 35, who's your broker? I don't know, Merrill Lynch, UBS. Okay, how much gold do you have? I don't know, 3 4%. How much Bitcoin do you have? Oh, are you kidding me? It's a Ponzi scheme. Zero. Mm. Ask anyone under 35. Who's your broker? Sure. What, what's a broker? Yeah, Robinhood. You mean my Robinhood account? Yeah, yeah, I got that. How much gold do you have? Are you kidding me? Boomer rocks? Zero. Yeah. How much Bitcoin yeah. do you have? I don't want to talk about it. Why not? Well, because it's a big part of my liquid net worth. I don't want to talk about it. So that digital divide is what's driving adoption of digital strategies in the digital age. And as we go from the analog age, where you and I used to meet under the buttonwood tree, you had a stock certificate, I had a piece of paper, currency, we'd exchange to electronic age, where now we exchange QCIPs over an electronic network to the digital age, where we have pure digital ownership of unique assets. 
And ultimately, every asset in the world will be digital. And we can exchange in real time. We can fractionally own. We don't have borders. We don't have hours where it's open and closed. We can trade when we want. All of that frees us up as a society to take our collective intelligence and and do great things. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note, if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways, lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. You know, when you when you pull the parallels to like internet adoption, right? And then relating that to today and talking about what pension funds need to see, it struck me as like, I think we're we're maybe now, I'd love to know your thoughts on this, moving past the period of people explaining what blockchain technology is into why it matters. And that's the transition that has to occur, right? Like I don't need yeah. to understand internet protocol to understand why I want to communicate, share, and store information, right? Oh, Virtually. So well said. Again, I'm stealing that one too, because <laughs> right now we are using TCP IP. Full stop. We're using TCP IP. And there's this show, and it'd be better if I could remember the name of the show that I watched with my wife. And the whole show is basically a retrospective through the eyes of a family thinking back to the 70s. And there's this great scene where this, this husband comes home and his wife's yelling at him like, you missed dinner again. Your son's missing you and you're never home. He's like, honey, I have this algorithm. And pretty soon I'm going to be able to send a picture using a computer. Now, here we are communicating live yeah. video, not just a picture, but all because of those algorithms. To your point, I don't understand how those algorithms work. I have no idea how I can talk into a metal and glass box. It can go through the airwaves into landlines, come up and you hear in real time on the other side of the country or their side of the continent, right? In real time. I have no idea how that works, but I don't care. Because as you said, it's about sharing, storing, manipulating, and using data, information, relationships. And to that point, all great technology becomes invisible. So when we stop mm. talking about it, and that's why we changed our name. Our first fund was Blockchain Opportunity Fund 2. Our second fund was Blockchain Opportunity Fund 2. Our third fund is More Creek Digital. Mm. We don't talk about blockchain yeah. because we're not investing in blockchain. We're investing in the opportunity set created yeah. by this liberating operating system that will be full stop will be the operating system for the internet of everything or the internet of value, or as I like to call it, the trust net, mm. where trust is determined by the technology, not by the relationship you have with your banker. Right. Yes. Okay. Now, I, I'd love to get your thoughts on digital currencies, Mark. And you know, this is coming from a place of like authentic curiosity because I don't quite know where I land on digital currencies. And typically, when I, when I hold something in my portfolio, I know why I bought it because I yep. believe I know what it is because I, I believe I know what it is. Therefore, I know why I bought it. I also know when and, and why I'm going to sell it, what the trigger point may be. When it comes to my, my digital currency holdings at this point in my life, and I would challenge anybody who says they know, you know, because I think 13 years isn't really enough of a track record to know with certainty of what something will become. But if I've, if I've purchased a speculation, if I purchased a future currency, 
or if I purchased a store of wealth. And I don't know which one, but I do know I want a horse in the race. And so I dollar cost average in to a few cryptocurrencies. The way I see the broader landscape is maybe you've got your cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum that we all know. And then now you've got your central bank issued digital currencies, which are coming soon. And then maybe your Silicon Valley issued digital currencies like Facebook's Libra, probably Amazon will come out with one. Uh, But does that compartmentalization make sense to you? And do any of those three boxes catch more of your attention? It does with with even some more other other nuance in that. Look, the interesting thing about how this this started is, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he, she, they are, created this this concept, this idea of of digital money. And and what was novel about it is a lot of people had tried for years to create e-cash and e-gold and, and all these other things. And, and they all suffered from the same problem of double spending in that there was no way to authenticate true, unique assets in the digital world. And so if you think about you know, analog, right? I have a physical piece of paper, I hand it to you, and you see that it's real. Now, it could be a counterfeit one, and there's a marker that you draw on it to find out if it's a real $100 bill or not. But but you know, I, I couldn't create another one unless I had a printing press in, in the back in the back room. So then electronic came along. And you know, electronic, I could make copy, I could hit copy paste all day. The problem is that's why they don't let me control it, right? That's why we had banks and we had to trust the banks weren't doing that. The problem is the central banks do do that. They hit copy paste all the time. And that's why the value of our currency continues to diminish, right? When I was growing up in Seattle down the road from you in, in the 70s right? Gasoline was 31 cents. I bought a you know, gallon of gas the other day for $4.31. It's the same gallon of gas. It does the exact same thing, produce the same mm-hmm. amount of heat in the engine. But why did I pay for it? Not because the gas is better, because the dollar is worse. The currency yeah. has been devalued. And so money is different than currency. So money, the only money in the world is gold, right? Money is something that exists in the absence of a liability. And for 5,000 years, that has been gold. Now, there have been a lot of other things that have been tried to be used as money, but they, they didn't work out. Gold, for whatever reason, has endured. And so currencies come and go, right? There have been 775 paper currencies in the history of the world. Three quarters of them no longer exist. The rest will eventually go to zero as well. Uh, and they're well on their way, down 98 99% since inception, whether it's the pound sterling or the dollar. And, and ultimately, the reason is because governments will spend. And when governments spend and can then create money by fiat, hence fiat currencies, they will devalue, right? If I have a pile of a million dollars, I print another million, I just devalue the currency. Hmm. Very simple concept. So if you think about what Satoshi Nakamoto did, he said, all right, I can create a digital asset that is unique. And that first application was Bitcoin, which is money. So it is digital gold. Now, we said, oh, no, he meant it to be digital cash. Well, it, it could be used as digital cash, but here's the, the problem. In computing, you can choose to be fast or secure, never both, right? So you can either be secure or fast. Sure. And it's like in investing. You can you know, get richer or wiser, never both, right? That, that's it. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. In, in computing, you can be secure or fast. And Visa, very, very fast, not very secure. Bitcoin, not very fast, very, very secure, right? Been up for 12 years, 
never been hacked, ne- no fraudulent transactions, not one. How many times have people had to get a new visa number? More yeah. than zero. So the key is that it is the perfect money. There is no liability associated with it. There's no government debt against it, like all other fiat currencies. And it functions as digital money. So I believe that Bitcoin, everyone should own some percentage, one, two, three, four, whatever the number is, as that opt-out insurance against fiat, right? I'm not leaving the United States anytime soon, although they're trying to make me actually with all the taxes and the regulations on lockdowns and stuff. But for now, I'm here and I'm going to spend in fiat currency. So I'm going to need some fiat currency, but I'm going to have a portion of my wealth outside that system in an asset that stores value. And Bitcoin's perfect for that. Ethereum's pretty good for that. But Ethereum has some other use case in terms of, if you think about the protocol stack for the internet, you got TCP IP, you got FTP, uh, you got SMTP, FTP for files, SMTP for email, HTTP for websites, and then www. that links it all together. And in the web three or the internet of value, I think Bitcoin probably is the base layer. I think maybe Filecoin sits on top of that for files. Maybe we get Solana or Cardano or you know Polkadot or Cosmos to be in, in the SMTP, HTTP layer. And then Ethereum is kind of like the www dot that holds it all together. So some portion of assets in true cryptocurrencies, stores of value or medium of exchange. There's only about a dozen of them. Then there's thousands of utility tokens, most of which are going to zero. Right, Utility tokens are just crowdsourced venture capital without the benefit of owning equity, debt, or claim on cash flows. Most utility tokens, the whole ICO craze, most of it was scams, most of it was bad, but not all of it. And there are certain projects. The graph, for example, is a good example. We invested in it. It's been great. It now powers most of DeFi. Really interesting technology. Not a cryptocurrency per se, mm-hmm. but has more elements of crypto than, than the old utility tokens. Then you go to uh, the, the next iteration of, of applications and, and, and the things you want to own, digital assets, whether it be you know, NFTs or digital art or collectibles or digital real estate or digital stock certificates or bonds. And then you've got the whole movement to DeFi, where you can have protocols that you can own, liquid protocols, where you can share in cash flow. Right, take Ave. Right, instead of of going to a lending club or Prosper or a Rocket Mortgage to get a loan, I can use this staking protocol to borrow and lend, uh, or I can deposit in Compound and earn interest on my assets, or I can go to BlockFi and deposit mm-hmm. my digital assets and use digital financial services. So, all of traditional finance will migrate through centralized finance to ultimately decentralized finance. And what blockchain tech will do to financial services is what the internet did to media and communications. So in my portfolio, I want to have some cryptocurrency to be that store of value, particularly Bitcoin. And Ethereum to me is, is more like building blocks. It's, it's, it's a tool to power lots of development, where it be play to earn in gaming, whether it be digital identity, whether it be... Um, you know, DeFi, all these things I think will get built on that. Could we build DeFi on Bitcoin? Sure. Lightning Network is interesting. There'll be opportunities there. And so I want to avoid the scams as, as any of us would want to. Um, but that's actually not that hard. Uh, if, if you don't own 
equity debt or a claim on cash flows, then you own a speculative asset. Mm. Speculative assets, maybe so, well, that's Bitcoin, right? Yes, but Bitcoin is functioning as digital gold. Gold is a speculative asset, commodity, but it's also a monetary asset. It's mm. a form of money in the absence of a liability. So I believe Bitcoin has won that battle and it will be digital gold and a store of value and money for forever. On top of that, I think I want to own things that help us build out the ecosystem that transition us from the analog world to the digital world. And that could be things like Solana, that could be things like Ethereum, could be things like the graph and anything else that powers the building of these applications going forward. Uh, Polkadot is good, another good example, you know, some, or Cosmos, Tendermint. So lots of things out there that, that are, are developing. Avalanche is another one where you're iterating on technology and people say, but, but, but what about, you know, the, the, the Ethereum killers and someone's going to put Ethereum out of business. EOS thought they were, you know, it didn't have the technological superiority. And so it, it didn't work. Mm. Uh, there will be others like that. Ultimately, in an open source world, what I, what I kind of like about this environment in which we live is the best technology doesn't have to be the technology that wins. The technology that wins is the technology that gets critical mass first, called right. the law of increasing returns. Yeah. And yeah. the network effect is, is how you declare victory. And the network effect is enhanced by an open source world. So Bitcoin became superior and the forks, you know, Bitcoin Cash and Satoshi's vision went off, but they didn't get enough network effect. And so as people saw things like SegWit or, or uh, Taproot that they wanted to add on to Bitcoin, and it's not going to change very often. It doesn't need to change very often because it does what it does really, really well. And it will never be what you and I used, I don't think, to buy things. I think it will be more of a store of value and we'll use second layer or third layer solutions to do transactions. The same way Visa sits on top of the monetary network. Mm -hmm. I use my Visa card every day, but I don't settle up with Visa every day. I settle up once a month. Mm -hmm. And so it batches my transactions on a, I learned this yesterday, so I was you know one day old, uh, on a mainframe computer. And the funny joke the guy said is, said, when we have a problem with our system, we turn on the red light at the Sunnyvale retirement community because the only people know COBOL are in their 80s, which is true, like my dad. Mm. And uh, he was kidding, but, but not that far. Um, so technology advances, technology improves. It builds upon the shoulders of giants. And that's why every iteration in this technological evolution gets better and better. And it's why the network effect creates this exponential opportunity for wealth creation. And I kind of leave you with this idea. If we think about an exponential curve, X, Y axis, parabola, the left-hand side is, is web one. That's yeah. Microsoft, Intel, Cisco, area under the curve, parallel to X axis. It's a lot of, that's a lot of wealth. Then we get to the knee of the curve, knee of the curve, that's web two. Mm -hmm. That's Alibaba and Netflix and Amazon, more wealth. Yeah. Now we're going parabolic to the Y axis, that's web three. So the untold right? Opportunity. This is the biggest wealth creation opportunity I'll see in my lifetime. I've probably be here a long time because I got that 10-year-old, but this is the opportunity. And you want to own cryptocurrency. You want to own the building blocks or the tools that will help bring this 
trust net and this internet of value and this migration from analog to digital uh, to reality. Okay, now following that last thought that this Web3 is the largest wealth creation opportunity that's ever existed, what's the play going to be for companies like, I mean, we know Libra a little bit, but yeah. you know, what's the play with Libra? What's the play with, with Amazon? What's the play with yeah. Apple? You know, what do you we, expect to we, see? Uh, we like the Libra project. You know, we actually are, are an application to try to be one of the validator nodes. And, you know, nodes is what makes uh, these networks so secure, right? Bitcoin, I think, has 10,400 nodes and Ethereum's up to almost 5,000. The more nodes, the better, the more secure. And, and the thing about Libra that, that I think is, is why, you know, the U.S. government is so afraid of it is you ask the question about central bank digital currencies. Central bank digital currencies are not cryptocurrency. They are digital forms of fiat currency, and they have all the defects of fiat currency, meaning they can be created at the whim by fiat of the government. They're worse because now you got surveillance and programmability. I'm sure you've seen the video of the guy from the BIS saying, of course, we want central bank digital currency. So then we can program how you spend your money. My God, my head exploded. Are you kidding me? You could say, you, because of your social credit score, you can't buy these things. You can only buy these things. Or you can't travel to this country. You can only travel here. Or worse, if you don't spend your money by a certain date, it expires. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So central bank digital currencies have so many defects, but they will happen. They will happen, yeah. Everything's going to run on chain. Everything, right? Just like everything runs on TCP IP. It didn't 50 years ago. And no, nobody had computers 100 years ago. And so, just to be clear, that's what a central bank digital currency really is. It's a surveillance tool that also functions as a currency. Is that how you see it? Absolutely. It's, it's just a, a digital form of the current fiat, which suffers all the defects of monopoly-issued assets. Anytime a monopoly issues an asset, it's, it's inferior to decentralized solutions. It's fault, you know, it's not fault resistant, meaning, you know, you could literally, you could hack uh, a central bank if, if somebody were that advanced and, and really cause, cause havoc. Uh, a decentralized system is much harder to, to infiltrate. Um, but most importantly, it, it just, it's controlled by a small minority of people who probably have a different agenda than you and I and the people listening on this, on this call. So ultimately, central bank digital currencies will exist. I think China will be first. They already are. And, and then Russia probably would be second. And then the US will probably be a distant third because for whatever reason, we're fighting it for some unknown reason to me. I think more and more capital will flow into cryptocurrencies as well as crypto assets, digital assets, non-fungible tokens, et cetera, security tokens, et cetera. And, and ultimately, we'll live in a digital world where digital ownership functions in the same way that electronic ownership functions, but we won't have to trust banks as third parties will have code. It's like, think about getting lost. Do you stop and ask directions? Heck no, especially not in the South where I live, right? Because the person will say, well, you go to where the oak tree was and you make a right. You go to where the general store was and make a left. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about because I wasn't here 50 years ago. So right. that oak tree is not there and the general store is gone, right? There's a Walmart, but no general store. So this idea that that we will not migrate in this way, crazy. Uh, we will, you know, new mm-hmm. technology. It's like Gresham's Law. Good money, 
pushes out bad and we have good money being created in form of Bitcoin and, and other uh, cryptocurrency, it will eventually crowd out the really bad stuff. And you've seen that in Venezuela and Argentina and, and Zimbabwe. But eventually it'll happen in all the other Western nations that are getting overly indebted and devaluing their currency. Mm. Okay, so best option on the future if you uh, you only have one one play to make is that straight holding Bitcoin? Ah, man, that's a tough one. That's a good. That's a good question. I you know I I would say the infrastructure around digital assets, and so I'll give you two with a hyphen. So exchanges for digital currencies like Coinbase and and Kraken and others but also exchanges for NFTs, non-fungible tokens, because ultimately every asset, whether it's a movie ticket or a piece of art or uh, a stock certificate is ultimately going to be a token. And they're going to exchange across these networks. You know, we have an investment in this company called Figure and, and they've created something called the Provenance Blockchain. And their goal is to uh, displace DTCC. Now, just for perspective, DTCC processes $1.8 quadrillion a year. I don't even know how many zeros that is. It's like 12, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's big. And it's valuable. And so if we think about a new platform processing that volume in the digital age, and it becomes provenance, that asset becomes very, very valuable. So owning those infrastructure-related assets is important. Now, Second place to those assets would just be the the cryptocurrencies themselves. I think Bitcoin has a bright future, but I think the upside is not as great as it was, obviously, in, in the earlier days. The way we think about cryptocurrencies is, you know, Bitcoin today is like a Series E venture investment. It's still yeah. a growing network. It still has a lot of potential. I still think it could go up 10 or 20 or even 100x from here, but it's not going to go up 10,000 times or 20,000 times or 100,000 times uh, like it was when you, if you bought it at 0.003 cents. That's, yep. that's over. Mm. Ethereum, more like a Series C, Series D, a little bit earlier, bigger upside, one order of magnitude bigger. But then there's a whole bunch of stuff right at that next layer down that are like more like Series A, Series B. And that's the, you know, the Uniswaps and the Sushi Swaps and the Aves and the Compounds and the Synthetics and, you know, this thing Bond that, look, if Bond works, Barnbridge works, it could displace all of, you know, the uh, structured product, uh, structured finance group at Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it could. And there will be other iterations of these DeFi related play to earn NFT all of those uh, currencies that allow you to transact on those those networks are going to be very very valuable. So that was it. That was a long way of saying I can't give you a one yeah. because that's not the way I think about the world. I think about portfolio management, and I want to own a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this because I know there's going to be a normal distribution. Some of the things I believe are going to go to zero, and that's good. We want zeros. Mm. Right? We want zeros because if you don't have zeros, then you can't get the right tail of the 10Xs and the 20Xs and the 50Xs. In the middle, you know, things happen, you get good outcomes and you make a little bit of money. But what you're playing for is the tails. You're playing for that power law. And we're in this technological evolution wave where the power law is where all the big money is going to be created. 
Got it. Okay. Now, if we were to exit blockchain technology from the conversation and pick one other growth-oriented, long-term focus, what strikes you as a second favorite? Yeah, uh, I, I still think there's a lot to go in in cloud. Uh, I think the migration to cloud is is really just getting started in places like China and India. So I think there's massive, massive opportunity there. And then I, I would say healthcare is another one. Interesting. Where okay. that, that integration of science, right? The pure science, like real science, not the pseudoscience and fake science we read on the internet, but real science and and data and that power for drug development, uh, cur- curative disease management, all of these things are are extraordinary. And hmm. I would say those two areas, so pure tech related to the management and storage and manipulation of data. And then the last part of it would be AI. And in fact, for us, one of our big things is something we call blockchain intelligence, which is the merger of AI, predictive analytics, and blockchain. Because blockchain is great for storage. AI is good for manipulation and management and prediction. And so when you put those two together, you get blockchain intelligence, which, but AI, cloud, and healthcare, if you didn't have, if we didn't talk about the blockchain stuff. Yeah. And while those three work together uh, with a lot of complementary options as well, it's funny. I've, I've, you know, I look at health science as what I hope to be and what I believe will be the biggest bull market of my lifetime. Yeah. You know, the whole world's your market. Who doesn't want to live longer, think faster, feel better, all that stuff? Feel better. No, look, and, and the amount of wealth that has been created. Uh, by the boomer generation, it's going to pass to the echo boomers, like from me to my kids, is trillions, right? 67 to 70 trillion, depending on who you talk to. Most of that is going to end up not in the traditional investments. It's going to end up more in venture capital, in crypto, in digital assets, in innovative healthcare technologies. Because to your point, you know, we all want to, to take advantage of these advances in health science, in material science, in you know, pure technology. And it's hard to imagine the unimaginable, mm-hmm. right? But that's, that's one of my hashtags, right? Imagine the unimaginable. But it's hard. And it, it's hard to sit around and get time to actually sit and think about the really big ideas. In fact, again, I'll, I'll leave you at this thing. There's this essay written by this guy, William Jerizowitz, and it's called uh, Solitude and Leadership, Back to Leadership. And it basically talks about, uh, which sounds like an oxymoron, solitude and leadership, right? How can a leader be alone? But the whole key to leadership is having the ability to step away from time to time and to truly think, right? To turn off the distractions, to turn off the the constant wave of information. And look, it's it's so hard in the world we live in. I say this all the time. We're we're drowning in information and thirsting for knowledge. And you know, I, I tweeted it this morning, right? Knowing what to ignore is a superpower. Absolute superpower. If you can just turn off the noise, focus on the signal, mm. spend time out in nature, away from the masses, and actually think. I truly think it's like my favorite uh, line is, is the IBM. That was their thing. It was on everybody's door. The word think, um, because if you're not thinking, then you're not 
growing. And again, back to the, uh, it's going to push you outside your, your comfort zone to contemplate this, this realm of the unimaginable and the things that, that don't seem possible. And if you can spend some time there, not all your time, you don't want to be fanciful. If you can spend some of your time there, I think you 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 will uh, be a better investor. You'll be a better father, mother, husband, or wife, or uh, friend because you'll you'll be more at ease and at peace than than just being constantly bombarded with all the nonsense. I love that, and uh, yeah, that's a great that's a great circle to wrap this chat up back to mindset, right? And yeah, Ray Dalio credits meditation as the best tool that he ever discovered in all of his success uh, as a consequence of that. And you're right, like taking that time to exit yourself from the conversations, exit yourself from the noise, because thinking like a contrarian or critical thought, it's a muscle, right? That needs yep. to be exercised and independent thought is no different. So uh, Mark, this is a fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed it. So no, me too. I, I really appreciate uh the opportunity to come on on the show and and to to share big ideas and, and look I, I say this all the time that there's nothing better than uh, talking with someone who who is really prepared uh, thought up a bunch of really interesting thought provoking questions but then more importantly listens to the answers and then asks even better follow up questions and so I really enjoyed our time together and, and hope we'll get to do it again. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.